Cleveland Schmooze is sponsored by the Cleveland Jewish News. Get the latest news and information from the Cleveland Jewish News delivered right to your inbox. Choose from breaking news, daily headlines, community life cycle notices, arts, events, highlights, and more with our free e-newsletters. Sign up now at cjn.org slash e-signup. Welcome to Cleveland Schmooze, a bi-weekly podcast about the people who make up Jewish Cleveland. We're your hosts. I'm Rachel Rood. And I'm Robin Rood. This week, we are talking to cantor Aaron Schiffman, who has been with B'nai Asherin for over two decades. He is a sixth-generation cantor, and we talk to him about growing up in South Africa and about his involvement in the annual Purmspiel play at our temple. We sat down with cantor Schiffman at B'nai Asherin Congregation in Pepper Pike. Cantor Schiffman, thanks so much for joining us on Cleveland Schmooze. Pleasure to be here with both of the Roots, one of my favorite families in our congregation. Wonderful. Nice. (laughs) (laughs) Compliments will get you everywhere. Um, So we want to start by asking you a little bit about your upbringing. And you have a unique upbringing because you were born in South Africa, is that correct? So yeah, talk about what it was like, like your memories there and especially Jewish memories. So um, my father was a canner also, and in the early 60s, he was recruited to come out from Israel with my mother and my brother at the time, who was only six months old. The Lithuanian Jewry was very strong there, and they were recruiting canners from all over the world. And my parents came out in the mid-60s, and I was born there in 1967, and my sister a few years later. And it was a very unique time to be born there because the way children were raised there is not what we see very prevalent nowadays. But my memories are very good memories in that South Africa was a little bit behind in technology. Therefore, we didn't get TV till 1979. Wow. How long had you been there already? I had been there almost 11 years old, 12 years. I remember as a child, primarily going to school, but always being outdoors, always outdoors. And then we, when we wanted to get some kind of a stimulation, as in your podcast, but we didn't have podcasts, we had radio mm-hmm. stations. We would listen to radio with uh, drama shows on the radio based on the BBC. Wow. And BBC used to, we used to pro- listen to all of these shows and you'd hear the special effects on the radio and your mind would go to work for you at night because we didn't have any, any visual outlets. So I think it was a really neat time in that uh, did a lot of stuff outdoors. And when you're indoors, you listen and you read a lot more, as opposed to one of the many wonderful things of the internet. We don't have internet or, or stimulation from TV. So wait, tell me again, this, the year your parents came? And the parents city? came in 65 to Johannesburg. Join. I was born in 67. My dad took on a congregation. And I was raised in his congregation. And he was the cantor? He was a cantor in his synagogue. What was the name of the synagogue? Uh, Waverly Northern Hebrew Suburbs. Waverly was Northern Hebrew Suburbs, but the little suburb was called Waverly. And how uh, old was that congregation? That I'm not quite sure, to be honest. I don't know the whole history as well as I know our history. Uh, because became my... more of a history buff of our congregation. Um, but uh, the synagogue was actually a growing synagogue. But uh, that too, they did an expansion when I was already there. So it was smaller had a nursery school with it, 
And back then, people were synagogue goers, but our synagogue primary service was Friday night. Yeah. Friday night was jam-packed. If you came a little late, you were standing. <laughs> and what's neat was that all kids came. So I had a lot of friends my age. I have to admit, I wasn't inside too much. I was out playing with my friends until I started singing in my dad's choir when I was about eight or nine, and I became one of his lead soloists. Every Friday night, we had a choir, and I also sang a lead soloist in his high holiday choir. Did the other kids think you were just getting favoritism? Really? Because <laughs> you were not the really because uh, not really because. Uh, so uh, when did you know you were a gifted singer? I actually sang at a very young age. Um, I was already doing solos, not in in the choir format. Like we would have like uh, something you may relate to, like we would have kids sing Ashray. I would mm-hmm. finish up the service at a very young age, and I had no inhibition because I would sing with my dad. I used to go to services with him. I never quite thought about it in terms of uh, something that I would was laying the groundwork for a professional career. Mm-hmm. I saw it as, you know, my dad sings and I sing and he wants me to sing, so I'm going to sing. My, my mom tells me that as a child, and I don't remember this, but when I'd be in the bathtub, I would be singing the whole Friday night service already. <laughs> Probably not the way uh, you'd want to hear the Friday night service as a kid, but I learned by rote and by osmosis. So. Right, so the way I would sing Old MacDonald to Eli is right. singing, I was doing the, whole singing Friday the Friday night, night service. Right. <laughs> I would pick up, I was very musically inclined and uh, liked to sing, but I never envisioned singing per se as a child. But as I said, going back to that era, um, late 60s and for sure 70s, which I remember very well. It was really a neat, neat time. Um, as I said, techno- technologically, we were behind. So we didn't have TV and we used to watch films on reel to reel. So when you had a mm-hmm. birthday party, somebody would get a reel to reel, we would get all the American shows. So for the boys, it would be like watching Batman, if you will. Sure. Uh, I remember when one of the first TV shows to hit, when we did get TV, it was in limited fashion. I think it was 1978 or 79 was Dallas. Dallas was huge. So everybody would get around the TV sets. But even when TV did come out, it came out in abbreviated form. So let's say 6 p.m. or 7 p.m. at night, uh, half in English and then half in the secondary language, which was called Afrikaans, which is a mixture of Dutch mm-hmm. and German. I was going to ask if you know Afrikaans. I did know it, to be honest, but I've been out almost 40 years and I haven't practiced it. But we had to take it to school and we had to have mm-hmm. a class in it. And so I took it and I did speak it uh, as a child. Mm-hmm. Um, absolutely did speak it. But primarily the mother tongue was English, but mm-hmm. we were a bilingual at home because my parents are Israeli. So they would speak to us in Hebrew. So you so were not Yiddish? No. Yiddish, they did say, speak to us. And I'm sure you've heard this common theme when they didn't want us to understand something. <laughs> However, we picked up on it quickly and we started to understand Yiddish. So yes. then you got asked to leave the room because they couldn't use the lingua, the Yiddish anymore. So basically you were learning four languages. Correct. Wow. Uh, we were also living in a time which was really interesting and we had no clue as kids because we were naive. We were in the apartheid era. Right. Mm-hmm. So I remember, for example, we lived in an apartment building 
and the Africans, Africans were allowed to live in your building, the blacks, but in the top floor. Mm. In the houses, people that had houses would have like a separate guest house where they had a, an, a maid and a gardener. Mm-hmm. However, I remember very, very clearly uh, where police could stop someone on the streets and ask them for their papers. What were they doing there? Mm-hmm. You couldn't just be roaming around. However, as a child, you never really processed what was going on because this was the very norm. But I always had a good relationship with our nanny and the gardeners. I used to play soccer with them in the streets, Mm -hmm. but they were allowed to be there. But we knew, for example, nobody knew anything about Nelson Mandela, for example. I never heard about Nelson Mandela until I got to America. Wow. Because they basically, the, the white government was actually... Unlike this interview we're doing now, basically, like some countries, blocked what you could see on the news and what you right. couldn't see or read right. about. So I never knew anything about that. Just as an aside, my husband's father's mother came from Johannesburg. Yeah. And they, back then, when I did some genealogical research, Johannesburg was called Jewtown because they were gold digging. And a lot of the Jews had come from Eastern Europe. To Johannesburg is what I read online. Yeah, I've Did never, I never heard it referred to in that sense, but it was a very affluent community. Um, obviously, there were more opportunities from Jews coming from Europe because there was obviously a land, obviously, that was very rich in minerals. Um, they were looking for gold. Correct, gold and the great, diamond, diamond mines. The yeah. diamond mines, however, unfortunately, um, there's a lot of corruption there now. To the point, as rich as the land are in resources now, there are several times a week they have rolling blackouts, which is hard to imagine. A modern country, like especially mm-hmm. a city like Johannesburg, with all of the resources that they have now, that they should have the power turned off for 15 hours at a stretch. Wow. So, but growing up then, I will tell you, it was mandatory to go to the army. Also, my parents saw the winds of change coming and... My dad had an opportunity to come to America with my brother for his bar mitzvah. My brother's 18 months older. My uncle, who served at this congregation in 1981, and you know that as a historian yes, because I you, you made the... <laughs> I do. You're right. Um, I, I wasn't there. He came to visit him in Columbus, Ohio, and he wanted to show off his older brother as a cantor also. So he got him to lead the service. Consequently, Cleveland, B'nai Ashuran, came to recruit my uncle in Columbus. Mm-hmm. And when he knew he was going to come here under Earl Linden's presidency, he said, look, you don't have to go much further. If you want to talk to my brother, I'm sure he'd be interested in coming out. It's a matter you should have a conversation. And one thing led to another, and they engaged my father. And my father came to Columbus in 1981 as a canner. And what synagogue was that? Uh, Agudat Achim, it's in Bexley, still right. there. A lot of people I yeah. know belong to that. Yeah, center. in Bexley, and my uncle came here. And turnabout is fair play, because when my dad left to South Africa in 1965, he was a cantor in a coastal town called Netanya. You may have heard of Netanya. Mm-hmm. And when he left, he asked them to speak to my uncle about taking his position. Mm-hmm. So my uncle took his place. My dad came to uh, South Africa and he brought out his two brothers with him there. He recommended them for pulpits and then my dad ended up coming to Columbus. 
I ended up in a synagogue in Cleveland only through my uncle, who happened to tell me about this opening when he was already in Boca Raton, and he had a lot of snowbirds. Yes, he had snowbirds there, and he said, I hear that this canna there is leaving, the one that followed him. Sure, Berkowitz. Ed Berkowitz. Yeah. And if you don't mind cold weather, it's a nice group of people. <laughs> That's right. uh, I can't tell you just because we're related, you're going to get the job, but I can get you into the interviewing process. And that's yeah. how I ended up interviewing, meeting a lot of the snowbirds that were down in Florida, oh. which were the Gottliebs and the Moskowitzes. Because I never heard that this was a done, I, I pretty much heard this was a done deal from my side, from the, the gossip on our end, <laughs> that it wasn't. You know, you were going to get the job. No, no, no. That actually wasn't the case. When you subscribe to the Cleveland Jewish News, you receive 52 issues of the award-winning CJN and 15 total magazines, including J-Style, Canvas, and Balanced Family. Try the Cleveland Jewish News for free. Start your six-week free trial at cjn.org slash six free. But uh, going back to South Africa was a very unique time. We were also raised on the English system, which means that we had to wear uniforms to school every day. Mm-hmm. It was a different uniform for the summer months versus the winter. Mm-hmm. Also, conversely, the principals were allowed to hit. Oh. It's called getting caned. Capital punishment. So, yeah. yeah. So if you came to a principal more than once or twice, you'd yeah. jot you down in a notebook. Yeah. And we had panels. Yeah, Pedro. So basically he had a cane. It was a bamboo stick. And if you knew he was drawing the blinds, you'd bend over and touch a chair. And it was actually for the guys, it was bragging rights. It was almost a thing to bragging rights for that. But it was a very unique time in uh, being raised in that era. And um, I really, uh, looking back on it, enjoyed um, being raised in that particular way. Mm -hmm. Our school years ran from January to November. And then summer, because it's southern... Right. Southern Hemisphere is the opposite seasons. Right. We had camp in December for three weeks. We used to go to a camp which was, took two and a half days to get to by train, hmm. wow. which was part of the fun of going to camp. Does yeah. that seem weird that December it's snow, but you remember growing yeah, up? Yeah. December you know, it's like summer. Yeah, that's <laughs> exactly right. Weird. <laughs> but uh, we went there and it took two and a half days and it was true camp because we used to like live in tents. We used to put up our oh. own tents. Wow. The showers were outdoor showers. If you wanted to have clean clothes, you had to wash them yourself. And as a nine-year-old kid, we weren't washing anything. We just wore the same thing <laughs> over and over. My, my mom used to dread us coming home from camp because she knew we never. But then we, we went to the beach every day. There was a, we went to Cape Town, actually, which I'm sure you've heard of Cape Town. And that was amazing. That was an amazing experience. I remember that very fondly. When do you get, do you ever get to go back? I have not gone back. Since you left, I have now all my friends. Ago. To be honest, I'll tell you, all my Rafi friends. Like I don't know. I know. Rafi <laughs> has driven by donating his books there, but I actually was very interesting for me is that uh, most of my friends that I grew up, good childhood friends, most of them left. Oh. So the parents didn't leave because their money was tied into all the assets, and conversion rates you would have got hammered. For example, the mm. currency there is called rands. Similar concept to dollars, 100 cents make up a rand. Mm-hmm. However, 15 rand to a dollar. Mm-hmm. So you do the arithmetic. If you take out a million, a million dollars, I'm sorry, a million rand, you, you end up taking a huge hit going up. But the younger generation who didn't have anything invested primarily mm-hmm. left. My parents have gone back a number of times and have loved it. 
some of their friends are still there. Yeah. Where they went, we lived there actually for 16, uh, 16 years, from 65 to 81. Mm-hmm. So they actually were just back there last year. So if you go with dollars, you can have a really good time because you get a good bang for your buck. And you don't want to take your girls there? Um, I probably would. It's a little bit unsafe, to be honest, uh, depending where you go. There's not a person you can speak to there hasn't lived there that has not been carjacked or robbed. Mm. Matter of fact, just to tell you a story, one of my parents' very close friends um, were attacked in the driveway right before Passover. Mm. The guy almost bit her finger off mm. to get her ring. So now what's happened, the neighborhoods that we did grow up in, when uh, they got rid of obviously apartheid, they allowed blacks and whites to live side by side, which Mm -hmm. it should be. However, they weren't able to control the crime. So consequently, people had to build very high-rise fences and uh, high-tech security systems. And even the well-to-do Jews, where they were not feeling getting enough security, hired uh, people that were uh, mercenaries and things in the army just to re- patrol the neighborhoods. Mm. But uh, my friend last, last year, actually, her, his mom got robbed again in home at gunpoint. Um, so it's kind of not exactly so safe where you go. My friends, when I was already 18, 19, about 30 years ago, were telling me they were running red lights mm. and they had guns in the car just to protect, but they didn't want to stay still at lights because they're worried about carjackings. So certain areas that I did grow up in are now off off limits. You don't go there. Um, The community now, unfortunately, is going through another exodus. Things had stabled for a little bit, but now crime is starting to ratchet up again. In in retrospect, uh, a lot of people are leaving and very worried for their lives right now. But people that are, most people that now emigrate are going to Israel because it's the easiest country in the world to move to, not to live. Living is very difficult in Israel, as you know, because it's very expensive and real estate is through the roof. Yeah. A lot of my friends went to Australia because they found climate. the climates were very similar. Mm-hmm. Um, England is very difficult uh, and now America post 9-11 it's yeah. been very hard to immigrate to because of green cards right. and the right. amount they give up. Prior to this administration, I'm talking already, several administrations, right. they don't give out the green card so readily anymore. Right. Scary. I know you have to go soon, but um, I just was wondering what the transition was like when you were 16 leaving South well, Africa. Actually, not even 14. Very difficult oh, because really? we moved in August and there was no Jewish high school. Therefore, my brother and I went to a boarding school one week after we came. Oh, wow. Literally and one week. Where was that? In Baltimore. I went to Baltimore for my ninth grade, and the school wasn't such a great fit, so then I finished up 10th through 12th in New Jersey. But it was a very orthodox. Um, I grew up more like a Mizrahi, which is the knitted yarmulkes, and a little bit more modernized Zionistic, and this was a very black hat. And that was a bit of a shock to me, not to mention just coming home every day and not being able to come home anymore, and being, it was an all-boys school. And that was a very big adjustment. It took me a good couple of years to kind of hmm. acclimate. So not even the Jewish differences, like from modern Orthodox to Orthodox, but also just being in a completely different country on the other side of the world, I imagine was really hard. Oh, yeah. It was extremely... I mean, I was excited to come initially because we had this thought what America was, basically mm-hmm. what we see on when we got TV and we right. got the movies and mm-hmm. 
you had this idea. I remember being in JFK for the first time and seeing a push-button telephone. We all had rotary phones back then. <laughs> I was read. I wrote like ten letters to my friend. Yeah. You can't believe that. And then I, <laughs> first show I saw on TV was a Price Is Right. I said, oh my God, you can't believe how much money they give away on these shows. And I'm watching at six o'clock in the morning. Yeah, so like I was a rerun. So I was, it was a very big adjustment, but um, in hindsight, it was a good move at the time. I mean, looking, looking through the lens now. Yeah. Talk mm-hmm. about Pormspiel. Can we? Yeah. Get yeah. Let's it? talk about Pormspiel. So um, obviously, I assume the idea was to get more people from the congregation involved, and you know, putting on a fun play. And so the initial idea of Pormspiel came to me from one of our congregants, uh, Jerry Brodsky, who had found out about this uh, gentleman Norman Roth. I've got his bio here, but uh, Norman Roth wrote these uh, Pormspiels in large number. Um, based upon different musicals that people would relate to and make Purim fun, which it should be. Mm-hmm. Because it kind of was, a, a concept would be a little bit dry, just to come into synagogue, hear the Megillah reading, and then just dance a little bit. This actually adds another component, which is taking some of the storylines of Purim, the characters, mm-hmm. taking music that people generationally can relate to, and making that a hybrid to give mm-hmm. it a lot of people fun, allowing our congregants to participate. Yeah seeing some of the people that you know and you grow up with in the synagogue, mm-hmm. taking on roles and having a good time with it, oh, yeah. and making it um, mm-hmm. musically interactive that the people in the crowd can enjoy it, but the people have an involvement from the congregation. So the idea would be that, and this, I think, is our fourth year already, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, no, I think so. Um, so every year, we've taken a, every year we've taken a different uh, performer. This year, as you know, is Billy Joel. Right, yeah. that's so funny. Music generationally, which I think speaks to a lot of people, and finding lyrics that, A, in a very loose way, tell the Purim story, mm-hmm but with uh, humor that relates to our congregation in our city and to yeah. some of our performers, that yeah. everyone has a way to interact and relate, not just the performers, but those that are sitting in the crowd have a way to also uh, interact while sure. watching their loved ones on stage, mm-hmm. getting a good laugh in the process and also knowing the tunes. So I think it's a win-win. celebrating Purim. Correct. Aside from eating a, a hamantashen, Correct. for some people that's it. You know what, it, it kind of, as you said, it uh, reawakens um, the interactive part of Purim to make it fun, which it should be, just yeah. going in costume. Mm-hmm. But as you know, in a day and age now where it's getting harder and harder to bring people to synagogue, yeah. these are the kind of programs that actually bring people to synagogue. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And no, we also cool. have a meal and spiel it's a play on words. Because <laughs> okay. as we know, everything in Judaism is tied to food, with the exception to Yom Kippur and Tisha B'Av. Yeah, right. And that seems to go hand in hand when any time we do a program. Yeah. Well, we'll be there and we'll be in the play. Yeah, like almost all of us will. Well, you guys are a very musical family and I think you're going to have a good time with it. I think it's going to be a good time. I'd like to spread the word because I think these are the kind of things that bring people into the fold. And a number of people belong to synagogues for a variety of reasons. 
And these yeah. are another tool that just to bring people in. Yeah. Celebrate Purim. So it's a win-win. There's no, 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 yeah. no. Right. And guess who's Esther this year? Who? Me. You are? <laughs> we just got the email. Oh, I don't know. Yeah, so... Um, she so, could, she's not going to be livable. You can't talk to her. <laughs> but I think it's a wonderful concept, and I'm very appreciative to Norman for creating this idea. Yeah, so who's this guy? He was a writer for Broadway? Yeah, no, Norman is a, is a member of the Stephen Wise Free Synagogue in New York, where he wrote and directed the original Purim Spiels for his congregation. Billy Joel was his 30th and final spiel as he finally retired at the oh, Stephen Wise. But, but the key phrase is 30th. We've got right. a lot oh, to... We, we haven't scratched the surface. Of <laughs> Some of his most popular titles were the Megillah According to the Beatles, which we've done, we Broadway, did. Motown, mm-hmm. and yeah. ABBA. Yeah. He also oh, wrote spiels based on Broadway musicals as in Greece, Chicago, oh, and, and the cool. And his spiels have been performed over 100 synagogues in the U.S. and wow. Canada. On his retirement from writing the spiels, TV station New York One, I've got to admit I've never seen it, but it recognized him as a New Yorker of the week. Oh. And the New York Times also wrote a featured article about him. But there's clearly a need for this concept to be in synagogues yeah. with people. Right. Sometimes I think it's very important have forgotten sometimes to laugh a bit. We need mm-hmm. some more comedy mm-hmm. and humor in mm-hmm. the time that we live in. Yeah, it's a scary Putting way. aside any kind of political atmosphere that I don't want to get involved in that discussion. Mm-hmm. But in general, with the world happenings and the times that we live in, it's very important just to have humor. And this is a right. vehicle that delivers. My favorite part of this is when he uses music that this millennial generation has never heard of before. So he'll pick a song from the 50s or the 60s or whatever, and it'll be in there. And I love, because I've heard it from when I was a kid, I love listening to them go, huh, how does this go? Well, I'll tell you, one of the surprising things for me, as I've got the young girls also, is I had to suffer through their music for a number of years when we drive in the car. But more and more now, they are starting to recognize music from my era. As not just being your old, but like this is really good, you know. Yeah, so yeah, we're yeah, listening to more awesome. and more music like Billy Joe and, and Stevie yeah. Wonder yeah. and artists of our, of our era that we are kind right. of uh, starting to enjoy. And I think this brings that into life. We, we can't end, I know we have to leave. We can't end though without me saying that listening to you sing is the joy of me going to services. Oh, I thank you very I much. Just, I say this to your wife every time she's around, if I see mm-hmm. her, particularly high holidays. Yeah. I just come to hear you sing. We've definitely got you. the best canner in town, I think. I thank you. And, uh, and, and from my end, it's a truly a privilege and an honor to serve all of you and to be your canner because I feel a very deep connection with the congregants. And when you care about those that are there, it's a team effort. We're all doing this together. And I'm very honored and privileged to be served for the congregation and this canter. Thanks so much, Ken. Yeah, thanks. My pleasure. And all of you listening to this podcast, we have a very big congregation with lots of seats. So come, we can hold over 800. So if necessary, we can even open the doors and make it look like high holidays. Nice. Thanks for listening to Cleveland Schmooze, a podcast produced by Rachel and Robin Rood. 
Tune in every other Friday to get the latest episode in your podcast feed. You can also find an archive of our episodes at our website, clevelandschmooze.com. And feel free to share any comments or suggestions to our email, clevelandschmooze at gmail.com. That's schmooze spelled C-A-S-C-H. <laughs> That's schmooze spelled schmooze. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, goodbye. Goodbye.